0: Amen. Good morning. All right, all right. Grace and peace to you. Um, So we're nearing the end of a series on the church community. Um, We have for sure one message. I I might squeeze in two, but we have one left after this for sure. But we've been looking at in this latter half of the series um, those unique practices of the church community that sort of mark us out or distinguish us from other sort of human communities, right? The things that the church does that would, you know, distinguish us from a bowling club or whatever. Now, we saw in Acts that the early church, the first thing they did as a response to the gift of the Holy Spirit was begin to break bread together. I'm just always astonished by that. Like, the, the, the secret sauce of the early church was to eat meals together. Um, they were also very interested in in providing for one another so that when one of them had need, those who had more material resources sold what they had to provide for this person. I mean, they also were given these spiritual gifts that they use not for themselves, but for the common good, right, to benefit and to build up the entire body. And then last week we considered this practice of forgiveness. And I do think that forgiveness is, in our day, the one practice that has the potential to distinguish us the most from the world. That in our sort of vitriolic cancel culture, the church would be a place where there's actually forgiveness and redemption and new beginning. Um, So we strive to be reconciled to one another, uh, to cover each other's faults and personal offenses. And this week what we're doing is following up on that theme with the practice of mutual accountability where if our brother sins, we go after him. If someone is straying from the faith, we pursue them. Another name for this practice is called church discipline. There's sort of the informal variety, and then there's the formal variety. We'll use church discipline just because that's the normal term, even though it's maybe not the best term. And I know that when we hear these words, church discipline, the worst comes to mind. It conjures up images of the Spanish Inquisition or maybe in, closer to home, the Salem Witch Trials. We think of power-hungry bishops and meddling ministers and generally just a culture of suspicion and accusation. Now, I'm not arguing with that characterization, nor that the practice of church discipline has been abused. Instead, what I want to say is that that's not what Jesus envisions in this passage. If you read Matthew 18 specifically verses 15 through 20, you'll find that what Jesus is um, installing for the church is much different than how it has come to be practiced. It's not about power or control. It's not about making an example of somebody. It's not about those with authority exercising that authority. It's about, at the end of the day, looking after one another, caring for one another enough to pull each other back from straying, from walking away from the Lord. So our aim this morning is simply to rehabilitate this practice of mutual accountability. Now, because that's what we're trying to do, this sermon is going to be maybe overly informative, right? Again, this is not like, uh, uh, you know, we leave church on Sunday, so excited that we learned about church discipline and how to do these things, but it's necessary, because there's a lot of collateral damage when you look around churches where this kind of thing has just been handled very poorly, and the people that pay the price for it are uh, the regular attendees of church, right? So the idea here is to sort of set the record straight and, and be very clear about what it is and how we go about it, because, again, when conflict arises, and it will, look at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus says that these offenses are inevitable. So when these happen, we need to know how to handle them, that we might um, do it for the good of that individual and the church. So the first thing that we want to do is just look at what this practice of mutual accountability or church discipline is actually for. Because if we want to use something properly, you need to know what it's for right before you can use it. So. What is mutual accountability or its church discipline for? Now, there are two primary aims that stand out in our passage. The first is in verse 15, and the second is in verse 17. Notice, however, the context that these aims are set in. If your brother sins, Jesus says, verse 15. As we noted, church discipline conjures up images of oppressive hierarchy and nosy ministers. But that's not at all what the passage envisions. It's not a sort of top-down initiative led by the authorities. It's instead a brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister encounter. It's your brother who sins. So right away, this shows us that church discipline is not about lords with authority controlling their subjects. It's about brotherhood, it presupposes not supervision or prying, but mutual care and responsibility. It doesn't sort of encourage brothers and sisters to snitch on one another. Instead, it encourages them to lovingly address one another. So it's not a problem, at least initially, for the church leaders. My brother's in sin. Or look at what they're doing. It's, in fact, what brothers and sisters do for each other. And that is, they watch out For one another. Now, for what purpose? Why do we watch out for one another? Ultimately, to keep one another on the straight and narrow. When you address your brother and he listens to you, Jesus says, verse 15, you have won your brother, or gained, or regained your brother, depending on your translation. The idea is that your brother has gone astray. He has wandered from the truth, and you have gone after him, and you've won him. You've gained him back and brought him into the fold once again. Jesus says that he was like a lost sheep, that a straying brother or sister is like a lost sheep. Look at verse 12. He says, If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99, that's the shepherd, on the mountains and go in search for the one that is straying? And then Jesus adds, verse 14, so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, these little ones that Jesus mentions are his main concern in this passage. He says, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, he says it would be better for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. God is very concerned with the little ones. And again, verse 10, he warns his disciples not to despise one of these little ones. Why? Well, their angels continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That is, these little ones don't escape the notice of the Father. He sees them. And the point that Jesus is making all throughout the chapter is that we, you and I, are the little ones, all of us. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And so it's this sort of propensity to wander that provides the rationale for church discipline. Or for mutual accountability. We're not mountain goats who are comfortable on the steepest rock face. We are sheep. A not all that flattering term, the most vulnerable and dependent of animals. And if we were left to our own devices, we will wander our way into trouble and ultimately into death. And so accountability. Looking after one another proceeds from this very simple premise. Sin is stronger than we are. The world is stronger than we are. And the devil is stronger than we are. So we need to be looked after. after. We need our brothers and sisters to go out after us and to call us back in. Now, if we are these little ones, sheep prone to wander, then we are also shepherds the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Now, shepherd generally refers to, um, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, a leader of the people of the New Testament, um, the same idea, but specifically a pastor. However, that's not exactly what Jesus is referring to in this case. Here, everyone in the church community is a shepherd, meaning that that straying brother or sister is not his or her responsibility, it's our responsibility. So when God asks, where is your brother? We don't respond like Cain did at the beginning. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis 4.9. Instead, we know that we are our brother or sister's keeper. We look after one another. We go after one Now, the reason that we do this is obviously because we're weak, but second, because this is what our Father wants from us. Again, verse 14: It is not the will of your Father that one of these little ones perish, Jesus says. A 99% success rate is not good enough, in other words. You know, a lost sheep or two is not the price of doing business. It's unacceptable, Jesus says. So we're to shepherd one another because God has a deep concern for everyone in the church, especially the little ones. His will is not that they would perish. It's not just a, you know, an unhappy incident of collateral damage. This is someone whom the Lord loves, and so therefore we are to pursue them. Now the second reason comes in verse 17. So it's because we're weak and we need this mutual accountability. The second reason is in verse 17. So we're at the end of the process now. Jesus says, if a brother or sister remains obstinate and they refuse to turn from their sin, Jesus says, verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, by nature... A Gentile was someone who was outside the covenant community. So you had those who were Jews by birth who were in the covenant community through circumcision, and then you had Gentiles who were outside the community. And then you had a tax collector was someone who defected to the Romans and was basically uh, marking up taxes against his own people. So a tax collector would have been a traitor to the covenant community. And so what Jesus is saying is that this person who sort of refuses to back down from their sin and who's obstinate in it is to no longer be regarded as a brother and sister. So more on that later. I want to get to sort of the point here. Beneath these concerns that, that in, in, in very severe cases we would have to exclude someone from our fellowship, beneath these concerns is the deeper conviction that the church— should look different than the world. That Christians are not to live like pagans and tax collectors. Or simply, the rationale here, the reason we practice mutual accountability, is because the church is to be holy, right? We're to be holy. Now, to be holy means to be set apart. And we can take that in one of two ways, one of which I think is better than the other. We can think of holiness in a negative tone, that is, uh, holiness means being set apart from the world. Or we can think of it in a positive tone. That is, holiness means being set apart to the Lord. Now, in the end, those are really the same thing. But where we put the emphasis matters. So, uh, listen, if, we, if, if holiness is about not being like the world, then the church is going to become full of suspicion. You know, our brother who's falling into sin is not a wandering sheep, but a traitor. Here's someone who's acting like them and not like us. And that suspicion leads to accusation, and accusation leads to a sort of legalistic culture where it's not about brotherhood, but it's about rule-keeping. And the way that we maintain holiness, so to speak, is by policing the boundaries. However, if we sort of take it, from making the world the main point to making the Lord the main point, a different culture emerges. Our motivation at the end of the day is not to not be like the world. Our motivation is to be like Jesus. And so we don't call out our brother, or we don't call him back to the church by guilt-tripping him or by shaming him. Because it's not about big brother who's policing the boundaries, it's about brotherhood. So looking after one another ultimately is about honoring the Lord and presenting a good witness for Him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that we are the light of the world. He says just before that, that we are also salt which seasons and preserves. And so this practice of mutual accountability keeps the salt salty and it keeps that light shining bright. And so I want to just recommend this mutual accountability to you. It's not about power or control, but love. And love leads us to look after one another. Love leads us to be concerned with the holiness of the church. And without this kind of love, we as individuals and as a church are worse off for it. It's not a bad thing that we open our lives to the review of our brothers and sisters. That's a good thing. Their loving words, when they come to us and say, you know, hey, brother or hey, sister, I saw, you know, maybe you said this or you did this or whatever. These are good things. And what that does is it keeps us on the straight and narrow from It keeps us pressing onward toward the goal. So on one hand, I just want to encourage you to seek out someone you trust, another brother or sister, and just give them permission to speak into your life. A lot of the time there's not mutual accountability because maybe we see something, but we're just a little bit too timid to say anything. So instead of that, just you on your own, give that permission to someone to speak into your life. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them and tell them your faults. And on the other hand, be that for someone else. Check in on someone. Lovingly address their faults, if need be. Pray for them. Give them the opportunity to open up to you. Because we're all sheep, prone to wander, but we're all shepherds who leave the 99 and go after the one. We all need each other. So those are the reasons for church discipline or accountability. And now that we understand what the thing is for, our individual good and the church's holiness, now we can take a look to see how to actually use it. And so in this section, I just want to give you a rundown on the procedure of Matthew 18, which is just as important. Because as I said, I think this is where things typically go wrong, where... This issue of accountability is sort of handled wrong, and obviously it leads to collateral damage. So we need to know what it is, but we also need to know how to use it. So let's begin. Look at verse 15. It's there on the screen. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So as we uh, noted earlier... Uh, This is not a top-down initiative, but a one-to-one encounter. That is, the immediate concern here is not to get others involved, be it pastors or otherwise, but to handle the matter discreetly and directly. So if your brother or sister sins, and you know of it, it's a matter, Jesus says, between you and them and no one else. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this rule. We're not talking about maybe adultery or something like that, where other parties have to be involved. But Jesus says, as much as possible, it's between you and your brother. Hence, he says, go and show him his faults in private. Now, our aim here is not to expose our brother. It's not to shame him by publishing his sin for everyone to know. Rather, our aim is to conceal his sin. It's to protect his dignity and his reputation. The scripture says Proverbs 17:9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. And Proverbs 10:12, love covers all transgressions. As with all things, the golden rule is to guide our conduct. In everything therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you, Matthew 7:12. So we're looking out for our brother We're not trying to expose him. We're not trying to destroy his reputation. And because of that, we go to him in private. Now, this needs to be underlined in our culture because it's one, again, of virtue signaling. It's one of calling each other out and so on and so forth, where things are almost never handled on a one-to-one basis but through the channels of social media or through gossip or all these other things. That's not an option for us. Jesus says, go to your brother. And again, notice it's our brother whom we are addressing. It's not a transgressor or an offender. And because it's a brother, it tells us the spirit and the manner that the encounter is supposed to proceed in. Moreover, Jesus says we're supposed to show him his fault. Not to accuse him or to berate him. We're supposed to show him. So this is not a contentious or accusatory encounter, it's done in a spirit of gentleness, as the Apostle Paul says, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And the reason it's done in a spirit of gentleness is because when we're confronted, there's basically two options that we want to go for, fight or flight. Either we want to get defensive and sort of deny the case that this is our sin, that we've done this, or we want to flight. Uh, We want to deny it, right? We want to uh, sort of evade all that responsibility. And if we come in guns blazing against our brother and sister, we're going to provoke one of those two options. Instead, we come with gentleness. Because our goal is not to, you know, take a stand for righteousness. Our goal is not to make an example of our brother. Jesus said it's to win him. And when our goal is to win our brother and sister, How we handle that situation, meaning the words that we choose, the tone in which we engage, the environment that we set, right? We don't turn the lights off and bring down a a light over the top and two chairs facing each other. We set an environment in which we can gain a favorable hearing. We want to sort of uh, make it uh, uh, secure for our brother or sister to open up about their sin. However, that word, show him his faults, or point out or tell him his fault, as other translations have it, also leads us to be straightforward about the issue. We need to be gentle, but not at the expense of compromise. Gentleness is not indifference to sin. It's not mere softness, pretending that sin isn't sin. Gentleness is truthful. And so whatever the sin is, we're not to dance around it. We're to be straightforward with our brother and sister because that's ultimately the loving thing to do. So first, we're to go to our brother. It's our responsibility. Second, we're to go to him in private. Third, we are to go to him in a spirit of gentleness. And fourth, we're to be truthful about the matter. Now, when that's done in that manner, more often than not, our brother will recognize his sin And he'll repent before the Lord. That's more often than not the way it goes. However, there are instances where that doesn't work. And so further measures need to be taken. Jesus continues. Look at verse 16 now. He says, But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So, You can see there on the screen, um, the latter half of that verse is in capital letters. It's a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And it's instructing the nation of Israel on how to handle its judicial proceedings. And so witnesses are to be brought forward, not as a means of intimidation, right? We're not bringing in the heavies to sort of intimidate our brother into repentance, but for verification, Notice the word that is used there, that every fact may be confirmed. In other words, the role of these witnesses is to confirm that what our brother did was actually sin. Meaning the presence of the witnesses is designed to convince him that this is not just you know, one person's opinion. Because often it can be that, right? Where it's like, well, you, you did this wrong and someone's just being sort of uptight or stuffy about it. The matter is with bringing these uh, witnesses in is to show them, hey, this is not just one person's opinion, this is not hearsay, but this is actually something that is contrary to the will of God. And so this second step is mainly about setting the safeguards in place, because this can be super abused. When others are involved, they need to be witnesses, not our wingmen. Whoever these people are, they must be wise and impartial, brothers and sisters. Their role is not to back our play, but to give unbiased and impartial judgment. And it's here, as I said, that this second step can go wrong. Personal favoritism, sort of impulsivity, that is being quick to judgment, um, even some sort of forms of social bribery, etc. All these things destroy hope for any good outcome. Now our brother, he's not in a position where he feels like he can actually repent and open up, because you guys know how hard it is to actually say the words that I've sinned in front of somebody else. Now our poor brother, that's the last thing he wants to do, because he feels like he's being ganged up on. So we have to handle it rightly. And that we need witnesses also tells us that We're not judging a person's motives or thoughts, but concrete deeds, actions that can be verified with the seeing eye and the hearing ear, right? We're not going to our brother and saying, your heart's not right, or something, you know, I know your motives. That's not it. And what this does is it keeps the church community from becoming petty and litigious, that is, quick to accusation, and then believing the worst about one another where it devolves into this sort of call-out culture. If this deed can't be verified, that is, if there's not some sort of paper trail or smoking gun, this whole process has to stop. And it cuts both ways. So the witnesses there are to, are, are to convince our brother that he's in sin, but also to acquit him of any unjust accusation. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. That's the point of these witnesses. So if ever it comes to this, don't go seek your buddies, but seek the old heads. Seek those who are wise and understanding in these matters. And again, I'll just impress upon you, the end needs to be kept in mind. At this point, we're not trying to win an argument We're not trying to enforce our way of doing things. We're not trying to do anything other than win our brother. And if that is the goal and there's no ulterior motive, it'll be very clear about who we should include and should not include. The people that should be part of this second proceeding. So that's step two. However, with each subsequent step, you know, these chances that our brother will repent diminish. In the case that the second step does not secure repentance, Jesus gives still two more measures that should be taken. Uh, the second is, or the, the third here is Matthew 18, 17, the third and the fourth. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's an intensification here, but it's one that's brought on by the brother. In the previous verse, Jesus, his counsel, is directed toward our brother who does not listen. And here, Jesus says, he refuses to listen. In other words, at this point, it's no longer an issue of ignorance or weakness or even initial defensiveness. It's hardened, in fact, into obstinacy and outright denial. he's refusing to listen. So that should lead us to to, to to know like when this third step is necessary. There's outright refusal. Now it also indicates that the particular sin at issue here is not the main thing. The main thing is listening. Our brother can be forgiven and restored if only he listens and humbly receives correction. And what this tells us is that no one is beyond correction. In fact, we should expect correction. And when it comes, we should be ready to listen to it. That's the issue. What does James say, chapter 3, verse 2? We all stumble in many things. We should expect correction. We shouldn't be surprised when our brother or sister approaches us. Rather, the thing that we need is to be ready to listen to them when they speak. You know, we can't ensure that their motives will always be right or that they always have a goodwill toward us, but that ultimately doesn't matter for us as individuals.